Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. On April 26th, now don't tell nobody. No, tell a whole bunch of bodies. Tell a lot of folks. I am coming to Nevada to be with Amy. And you need to support Amy because she is certainly a candidate of the people. She is running from her heart and her soul. She is running based on her experience in this life and what has happened to her family. She understands from a personal perspective why it is so important to have leaders who actually care about the people. But I can't let it all out because you got to come to the party. April 26th at 6 p.m. You don't want to miss this. The People's Party with Amy and yours truly at the headquarters. Be there. We are our sisters and our brothers keepers. Yes, we are. Nobody says that when they grow up, they want to be poor. It happens. Life happens. Let's support people. Let's help them get those pathways of opportunities that they need. Yes, will there be outliers? Because our Republican sisters and brothers, yeah, there will always be outliers. But there are outliers on the white collar side too. But they, we want to penalize and critique poor folks. They don't get a second chance. People of color definitely don't get a second chance. So to my progressive white sisters and brothers, racism is real. Systemic racism is real. Institutional racism is real. And it's going to take the rain, rainbow mosaic of humanity to fight it. When I think about progressivism, baby, I think about black folks who were the original progressives fighting against slavery and abuse in this country. Progressivism is real. We are all progressives. And unfortunately, some on the left think that when we say progressive, we only talking about white. But right now, this afternoon, I see in this park the rainbow mosaic of humanity. I see my Hispanic sisters and brothers. I see my black sisters and brothers. I see my white sisters and brothers, Native American, Asian. We are all in this together. But we do have to have the courage to call out the isms in this country, and racism is still real. And Charlottesville is not the only it's not the only thing, because to see those neo-Nazis march, we know who the hell we dealing with. Who I'm really worried about is the people who wear a blue suit over white sheep. Yes. The people who are able to push policies that discriminate. That's who we need to worry about the most as we confront folks who are bold enough in the 21st century to walk all up down the street and show that kind of bigotry and hatred. They must be confronted, but we also must confront systemic racism and bigotry as well. So we are our sisters and brothers keepers. Number two and most important, Brother Frederick Douglass said this. He said, you might not get everything that you work for, but you will work for everything that you get. We are hard workers here. We get it. There is no mountain too high. We're going to do this thing. Because sisters and brothers, our mission is so high we can't get over it. It's so low we can't get under it. And it's so wide we can't get around it. This is our mission. This is our time. But then my grandma, born in 1913, sisters, she couldn't read or write, but she could count her money. <laughs> Kept her money in the Southern Ladies Bank and Trust with a handkerchief. <laughs> My grandma kept her money on one side and a pistol on the other. Whoa. <laughs> she was one of the smartest women I've ever known. And she had what we call in the African American community mother with. When I asked my grandmother, what does it take to be successful in this life? She said, my dear granddaughter, all you need are the three bones, the wishbone, the jawbone, and the backbone. <laughs> So today we're here with Amy Valela, who is running for Congress in Nevada's 4th District. Nevada's 4th District. Welcome, Amy. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So I wanted to ask you initially, what prompted you 
to run for office? You know, I really got involved with uh, politics on the wake of my daughter's death. Um, she died because she could not provide proof of insurance and was told at an ER after she showed up with every sign and symptom practically of a blood clot in her leg that she needed to go get insurance and see a specialist that they were not a doctor's office. Um, and then when I went to our, our representative and was telling, telling him at the time that, you know, this was your constituent in your district, um, I was pretty much told that there were other initiatives that they were busy working on. And at one point he even said, you know, well, I heard your story and, you know, I didn't have to be here today. I could have been out enjoying my weekend. That was a really, um, that was wow. one, of, one of the defining moments <laughs> in, in my decision. Uh, you know, the more I got in the community as a healthcare activist, the more that I started to see that people really falling between the cracks, that we weren't having the type of leadership that was necessary to make sure that the American working families were being taken care of. Yeah, you know, and the 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 story of your daughter is just so painfully tragic and upsetting. And in, in Nevada, do you have laws that require the emergency rooms to, to treat people regardless of whether they have insurance or not? Yes, it's actually a national law. It is called EMTALA. It's Emergency Medical Labor and Transportation Act. Um, unfortunately, as with most laws, um, they can and are broken. Uh, mm. We have um, been in uh, federal court now. We are also, you know, fighting it on that level. Um, but it's a, it's a very strong case. It's withstood about 15 motions to dismiss. Um, and we're headed on to uh, into trial. So, you know, okay. it's something that was put in place by Reagan in order to stop emergency rooms from dumping patients because they didn't have insurance. And the law states that, you know, you cannot be turned away from a, a hospital in the ER if, um, on the basis of whether or not you're insured or mm -hmm. whether or not you are a citizen. Um, and so this law was made to protect people from being patient dumped, but unfortunately it, it still happens. Um, and there's also um, something that people are calling now a wallet biopsy where they're doing the bare, bare minimum they possibly can so as to not find something wrong mm. to try to satisfy the requirements of the EMTALA law. Good afternoon, Mr. Soprano. How are you doing? Better now. I'm glad to hear that. Where they've been keeping you? They're the doctors around here. It's like the United Pillars of Bennington. <laughs> I'm not a doctor. I'm a utilization review specialist. I represent your insurance carrier. It's my job, together with your physicians, to see how fast we can get you out of this place and back home. Well, this is good. They've closed your incision and your ambulatory now, and I see they've got the Foley out. You want to kick me out of here? Well, a hospital stay costs a lot of money. My bowels don't work. I'm in pain. I just got operated on, for Christ's sake. Well, uh, perhaps your bowels would be working better if you hadn't tried to eat the sausage sandwich on 328. You know, I don't believe this. With all the money I've been contributing over the years, you want to put me in the street. Look, you, you, you think we're the enemy, but if you hadn't had insurance, you would have ended up at the county hospital. It's a good thing that you had your card with you when they performed the wallet biopsy. The what? In the ambulance. If you hadn't had your card with you, they would have dropped your butt at Martin Luther King. The wallet biopsy. Get out of my room, you sick. Wow. And I'm assuming this is a for-profit hospital. 
Yes, it was. That's just awful. I, you know, I hear these stories and we so deeply need Medicare for all. And I know this is something that you support. We're seeing on both sides of the aisle. We see voters, not, not politicians, but voters on both sides of the aisle uh, supporting some idea of a universal Medicare for all plan. Have you had conversations in your district with conservative voters who find this appealing as well? Oh, yes. Um, I have been out, you know, traveling the northern uh, rural counties of our district as well as, you know, in district, I've spoken to people from all different political backgrounds and leanings. And when you start mm -hmm. talking to people about the issues, and if we can get them past party politics, you know, when I tell them the story and I tell them what happened and that this, mm -hmm. this can happen to anyone. I mean, we were yeah. a working family. I was a CFO. My husband's an officer in the Air Force. My daughter was, was enrolling in college. She was working jobs as a CNA. You know, th this can happen to anyone. It's just not the unfortunate ones who don't have a job or, or you know, and whatever they envision in their mind has put them in that circumstance. When we start talking in real terms about how everyone is vulnerable, we are only as strong as our most vulnerable in our community. Right. You, know, you get past those party lines. And especially when I tell them, you know, no parent should ever have to hold their child as they die a needless death in this country. And, it, and I always tell them it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on politically. There are things that we can agree upon that affect all of us universally. Yeah, you know, and good for you to, to turn your tragedy into such, into such a positive message because I can't imagine what that, what that experience was like. That, that's like, wow. I wanted to ask you about some foreign policy stuff. Um, I love that your website is very thorough in discussing policy because a lot of times when you go to uh, candidates' websites, they sort of have vague sound bites and things, but they don't really get into details. Um, you specifically mentioned that you support uh, the Arms Export Control Act, um, which is probably something a lot of people don't know about because this still goes back to 1976. And the act was designed to require foreign governments uh, who have bought arms from the United States to use the arms for legitimate self-defense purposes. And clearly, we do not apply this law uniformly. I think that's quite obvious at this point. So I was thrilled to see that you support that. And then you also support the Stop Arming Terrorist Act, which I think is um, something we need to get behind. So what brought you to, to this decision? And what are the reasons surrounding um, why you support these two things? Well, first off, being the wife of a military officer, and being within the, the military community, you know, I understand exactly, you know, what people are, what their sacrifices are to serve in the military in this country and mm -hmm. what not only our servicemen and women uh, go through in, during deployments and seeing their loved ones at home also suffering as well as the children. Mm -hmm. One of the things we have to strive to do in this country is get back to being promoters of diplomacy and making yeah. sure that every avenue of diplomacy has been explored before we start engaging in, in acts of, of war. And one of those things that we're doing, I mean, we have Tulsi, who is also on the reserves right now. She's also speaking out against this. 
Washington as a guest of U.S. Representative Tulsi Gabbard, who recently introduced the Stop Arming Terrorist Act, which, according to her office, would stop the CIA or other federal government agencies from using U.S. funds to provide arms, funds, intelligence, and other support directly and indirectly to armed militants allied with terrorist groups like al-Qaeda and ISIS. Gabbard, a Democrat, says it's a genuine way to address the tragic struggle of refugees. There's a lot of conversation about, you know, what to do with refugees, how many to take, how should they be vetted. But the most important question uh, is how do we address the cause of these people fleeing their homes? The bill has bipartisan support, including from Representative Tom Garrett, a Republican from Virginia. You know, it doesn't make yeah. sense to be sending our troops um, to defend and American battles where we're actually participating and supplying the armaments that are uh, creating some of the conflict. We need to be abiding by our own laws, uh, ensuring that we are, you know, being, you know, leading by example in the world of being, you know, using diplomacy when we are interacting internationally. Yes, indeed, I agree with that. I think uh, you know, starting a war or invading a country or, or engaging in any sort of re regime change should be a last-ditch effort. And oftentimes, I think in modern, you know, I, I'd say the last 50 years since uh, World War II, at least, we have not followed that. Uh, we have engaged in protecting empire, and then we often say it's for humanistic or moral reasons when it's not. And I think it's an. I think the awful consequence of that is our armed forces are the ones that pay the ultimate price here. I wanted to ask you about how some of the stuff that's going on currently with Syria has has affected your opinions in this matter, because we have a situation in which we have armed. Assad's not a good guy. He's clearly a bad guy. But the other guys are sort of al-Qaeda operatives, and they're not good guys either, and we've given them arms. And, you know, you can go back to the history of, of Afghanistan, of Iran, how we overturned the regime, you know, back in the 50s because we didn't want them to nationalize, nationalize oil. All of these things eventually have consequences, slave trade in Libya. So do you think, um, what is the solution here? Well, I, the first step would probably be having a president that doesn't have his finger resting on the trigger for starting a war. <laughs> right. um, that probably be the really best first step. Um, you know, and it's amazing mm -hmm. that when you are, when we do our messaging about this, that sometimes we have people, even Democrats, pushing back and saying, wait, what are you, what are you talking about? We need to make sure. But here's the yeah. thing, you know, when we have to also, when we're looking at conflicts internationally, again, we should be leaders in making sure that we are using diplomacy at every turn. And also, the international community has a responsibility when we're talking with Syria in really determining mm -hmm. if and when and what types of materials are used before we go in and start dropping bombs. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. We we have to be we have to abide by our own set of standards that we are saying the rest of the world also needs to abide by. And we need to be the people leading that. Um, and again, when we start getting ourselves involved, I mean we're we're right now active in over two hundred lands with our military. I mean, we can only take on, you know, so much when we have so much right. here at home that needs to be done. You know, right now, we have a lot of our own citizens that are, are like 30,000 of them dying every year from a lack of health care. We have people that don't have enough to, to, to eat. We have veterans mm -hmm. that aren't, we are not taking care of like we should be from all the previous yeah. conflicts we've already been in. 
And we have, I mean, we have a ton of issues here at home that also need to be addressed. So again, I go back to what's our priority as a country and is, is our citizens and, and, and the, the people in our country, you know, our first priority, the agenda. You know, I've yeah. heard other people in the military as well. Like, what's the agenda? What's the plan? What is the, what is the outcome that we're looking for? And I'm not, I have not seen evidence of that really having a thorough thought process. Um, no, you yeah. know, and what we have been privy to now, again, I'm not in Congress at the moment, but it, you know, I don't, I do not see the steps of diplomacy or, you know, using a cool head before we start, um, you know, doing acts of war. There, there are repercussions, um, both to yeah. the people living in those countries, as well as our own men and women, women serving in the military. We owe it to them to make sure that when we send them into harm's way, that we're doing it for a very justified reason. Yeah, I 200% agree with that. You know, and I feel the, the now I see the Democrats engaged in all this kind of Bush crony apologi- apologetics, and it's like, it makes me cringe because I think to myself, this is a guy that led us into a war based on faulty intelligence, and I'm pretty sure that he was clear that, that, that the intelligence was faulty, but he pushed it anyway. So why are we, as Democrats, why are we, apologizing for that guy or pretending like they're better than what they are just because Trump is awful. And I'm seeing a lot of this lately. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I, I really believe that there is a, um, a real need by a lot of people that are in office to find fault with, um, with Donald Trump, or at least constantly push against on some, on some levels. Um, some of the times when he pulled off, he got a lot of resistance back when he didn't go in and strike Mm -hmm. right away. When we're talking about reasons, the reasons might be different depending on, on who is, is actually giving the message or actually giving their opinion. So when we talk about, you know, uh, Democrats, you know, that could be the reason if we're talking about Republicans, we built, everyone knows that a wartime president, their popularity surges when, Mm -hmm. when we're in a, and we're in a, um, uh, state of war. So there's a lot of things driving mm-hmm. us. And let's, let's not forget, we have the whole military industrial complex underneath yeah. all of this <laughs> Absolutely. that is mm-hmm. donating tons of money to all of our representatives. Mm-hmm. So oh, yeah. we have to, you know, when we look at this, it's, it's just not one thing, in my opinion. This is really um, just a conglomerate of a lot of different factors. But we really need to have some cool heads in Congress. And, and we need to make sure that we give back the power to Congress to declare acts of war um, and, mm-hmm. and really start looking at this in a holistic manner and have people who are willing to stand up against what's the popular um, opinion at the time and say, is this right? And, you know, again, what is the purpose? What is the agenda? What is the proposed desired outcome? And does this really do anything to increase the security of American lives? Why are we right. doing this? And Oftentimes that, it does the opposite. We've been at war for, you know, over a decade already. And mm-hmm. we have lost many um, men and women in the force. And there are multitudes of civilians that have also lost their lives. And I'm not sure exactly if anyone really knows what the, you know, total, uh, what the objective is in totality of what we're doing right now. And, and how close are we to achieving that objective and what is the, um, you know, uh, pull out dates. I, I have yet to see that really in totality. Mm-hmm. 
My yeah, you know, my opinion is what what you touched on the military industrial complex. I think at the end of the day, what's happening is our bot Congress is protecting American empire. When I say American empire, I mean multinational corporations and their business interests. You know, and I think I think that's the driving factor and has been for uh, many decades now. And the unfortunate reality is that harms not only our servicemen because they ultimately can pay for these things with their lives. But it also makes us less secure in the world because oftentimes I think we've created worse situations. I mean, look at ISIS. Uh, we've created more terrorists that hate us. And, and I don't see how this turns out well if we keep upping the anti-every anti cycle. So I agree with you on the diplomacy. Um, you also talked a little bit on your website about um, replacing the war on terror with something akin to the Marshall Plan, which I think is a really interesting idea. Tell me a little bit about that. So when we when we go overseas into specifically, um, I can touch a little bit without going into too much detail on my husband's okay. experience in um, Afghanistan and some of the experience he's had with the generals. Something he relayed to me that was a conversation he had had with a general that um, really stuck out in his mind was that you can't fight your way out of an insurgency, and mm. that we are creating yeah. more and more people who are hostile to Americans um, uh, with every strike. And there's really no centralized government to speak of. It's a lot of tribal, uh, tribalism throughout Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. um, and so what they, what they started to do is they started to do trainings to go in and actually win the favor and the hearts and minds of people that are in the community. Um, you know, enabling them to govern themselves, to build that infrastructure they need to get back on their feet. And when people have, uh, you know, a roof over their head, you know, food on their, on their plates, you know, yeah. when they have a sense of stability in their lives, um, there really isn't this extreme, you know, need for, um, for, for war. I mean, things settle down and mm -hmm. people are able to start getting back to some kind of normalcy in their lives. Mm -hmm. And they get back to doing what all of us want to do, which is to be with our families, provide for our families, and to enjoy our lives. Uh, nobody wants to live in any country in a constant state of war. No. No, we're all human beings at the end of the day. I think that's definitely true. Um, another thing that you support is the uh, Bernie Sanders Inclusive Prosperity Act of 2017. And so this is an act that would place a, place a small tax on Wall Street transactions. And then the money bill will be used to fund things like um, public tuition for the public university, um, eliminate student debt, and things of this like. I think it's a great idea. A lot of European countries do this already. And basically it's a tax, just to um, clarify for the audience, it's a tax on speculation. So oftentimes you have, for example, Wall Street banks hire quants and they come up with these mathematical formulas. And the idea is to like beat the market by a few seconds, make a few pennies per share. But if you're doing it on a massive scale, you actually generate a lot of money. But it can also push the market over the edge or, or cause other problems because it is speculation. So I think it's a great idea. Um, if we were to get this passed, where do you think the money should mainly go yourself? So I would I would like to see the majority of that money to go to making sure that we're providing to, uh, public tuition-free colleges, universities, and trade schools. You know, mm. we do need to make sure that we are developing an educated and strong working class. Uh, right now, we also have a lot of students who are under uh, immense amount of debt. We could possibly use some of that as well to do some sort of debt relief, um, and mm -hmm. especially in the economy we have now. It is so important that we rebuild 
our working families again in this country. We have seen, you know, the greatest economic disparity that we have seen since the 1920s. We have to, to put money back in to the working class in order to get rid of some of this disparity and also to strengthen our economy as a whole. And something that I hear a lot of, we hear a lot of, you know, trickle-down economics push down the American people's throat every day. And they may not even know what that means, trickle-down economics. Right. But that is what's being pushed down the throats, that if we just give more wealth to the job creators, and I'm saying that in quotes, yeah. <laughs> then, then we all reap the benefits somewhere down the line. And, you know, yeah. let's think about it. You know, when we think about the top 10% of the wealthiest families in this country have over 75% of the wealth. They're yeah. really, you really can't spend that much. You can't buy that many pairs no. of jeans or, you know, they're not yeah. going down to the local mom and pop's garage to get the car fixed or going to a local diner mm-hmm. or putting it back in the communities that absolutely are desperately need this influx of, of support monetarily. This is staying up. They're just getting wealthier. It does yeah. not work. Yeah. We have been living under this and watching watching this disparity grow and grow and grow, and it's only going to get worse unless we get some people that are going to represent the people in Washington D.C. that are not mm-hmm. beholden to you know corporate donors and special interests. It's only going to get worse. So we have to start making steps like this, you know. And we bailed out Wall Street and the, the banks, and, yeah. and in my yeah. opinion, they, they're just repaying what they've already been given. So time for us to stand up and do something that's for the people. I 100% agree with that. You know, they got the bailout and then they gave themselves bonuses. <laughs> and you're right. They're yeah, I love that. The House also passed a bill that would give shareholders of banks a non-binding vote on how much Wall Street executives are allowed to earn. The vote comes just as nine of the nation's biggest banks reported losses of $82 billion dollars while paying bonuses totaling $33 billion to employees, banks that took taxpayer bailout money. Here's Bianca Goladriga. 2008 was an awful year for the nation's biggest banks, but that didn't stop a bonus bonanza. The nine banks that received the most help from the massive taxpayer bailout gave 5,000 employees bonuses of at least $1 million each. Six banks paid out more in bonuses than took in in profits. New York Attorney General Andrew Cuomo, who exposed the payouts in his report, calls it an example of Wall Street's heads I win, tails you lose mentality. To say that the taxpayer is going to pay the bill and the bank executive is going to walk away with a million dollar bonus when it was a terrible year for the bank, that doesn't make sense to me. Even Citigroup, now one-third owned by the U.S. taxpayer, gave 738 of its employees bonuses of $1 million. They're not spending. Yeah, didn't you love the bonuses? And you're right, they're hoarding the money. They're buying, you know, the corporations and the, the uh, business classes are, are buying back shares now. So that further enriches them. There's no way that this money is going out into the broader economy. And given that our economy is consumption-based, this actually at some point becomes a problem for them as well. When they have nobody left to sell widgets to, right. they're going to have a problem as well. So you would think they would have a little bit um, longer-term vision, but they, they don't, and it just keeps getting worse. So I think um, greed is, is, is really hazing over their vision. Greed. Yeah, and think yeah. about this. I always greed. tell people this. As a CFO, I can tell you <laughs> that... A, corporations donating to individuals is not because they believe in good governance when they do it to candidates. They're donating because they want a return on their investment. 
Corporations don't have morality. They're not people. No. They exist no, for yeah. one reason only, and that's to increase the wealth of their shareholders and their executive level employees. So when we talk about, you know, corporations and like why isn't it coming back in, I mean this is this is how this works. And yeah. if anyone thinks that they're gonna just, you know, think about the economy as a whole and do what's good for the economy, that's not what the purpose of a of a company is. No, you know, that, it's that's strictly to not. generate profit. Yeah, I yeah. It's completely it's to generate profit. And so that's why the idea is so perverse that corporations are people. And you look at that Supreme Court decision, you're like, okay, there are only people in some capacities and not others then because you're not applying any sort of punishment to them when they behave right. badly like you would a human being. So come on. <laughs> it's like, it's just so ridiculous. There was a Supreme Court ruling that really this just really is a great example of this. There was an energy company that wanted to invest in uh, green energy and start researching it. The shareholders actually took them to court because it was eating into their their dividends and went all the way up to the Supreme Court. (laughs) And the the Supreme Court said, uh, no, you cannot do that. You must, your goal, your fiduciary responsibility is to your shareholders. Now think about that as I tell you that we have for-profit hospitals. We have for-profit prisons. Now they're trying to get for-profit schools. I mean, it's just going down the list on things that it has no business being in. People are not commodities. I agree. No, Amy, I agree. Uh, you know, just because we live in a free market system doesn't mean everything has to be for-profit. It's just become very perverse. Uh, it's, it's amazing to me how the typical, you know, the average American who may not um, fully understand how businesses work, will stand up and say, no, we need them to be strong. We need us to have, you yes. know, make sure that we have all these strong businesses. Yes, we do. We do need strong businesses. And they'll tell me when I'm talking about, you know, I'm not going to take corporate money or I'm not, well, you must be anti-business and we have to have strong businesses. And it's like, no, actually I was a CFO. That's mm. what I spent my career doing was creating wealth for companies. And I understand we need to have strong businesses, but we also need to have strong small and medium-sized businesses. We need to have yeah. strong entrepreneurs. And we also need, we doesn't belong in certain things, like I was saying before. There yeah. is a limit to what, where that, that would actually transcend in. You know, we have to make sure that we are putting the lives of our citizens and our people here in the United States first and foremost. Mm-hmm. And by creating an economy that benefits everyone, not just Increasing the wealth of shareholders and lining the pockets of CEOs. It has to be for yeah. everyone. Yeah, you know, and I think oftentimes the folks that are that have bought into that propaganda is because they've been told it for so long that they, they sort of think it's dogma. But I think the other side of it is they get sort of confused about the idea of growth and they think growth is infinite. And they don't seem to understand that the economy, even though it could grow and expand, is still a pie. It's not like going to go past 100%. Right. So if so if 87% of the wealth is being funneled into the top 3% per se, then that leaves very little for the bot. Like it's, they need to understand that that's, that's the way it works. And I think that they keep thinking that, well, if the rich guys keep getting richer, eventually that'll come to me and I'll get richer too. Like it raises all boats, but this is simply not the case. And there's been so many years where this idea of trickle down has has not come to pass, you would think that they would finally um, realize that it's just not true. But I don't know. There's some people still holding on to this idea. I think we are making headway, though, because I think um, 
there was a poll that came out recently that even a lot of Republicans were saying, no, we need to do something about about the situation, and they didn't find the word redistribute wealth as offensive as they as you might have thought. So I think we're making some headway. And, you know, people are suffering. They can't pay for yeah. rent. They can't pay for food. I mean, this is crazy. Here in L.A., for example, we have this new thing going on. Um, we have a really very bad affordable housing situation. And we have working people that are sleeping in their cars. It's absolutely out of control. Um, we have 10 cities. It's, it's insane. But part of the problem is we have hedge funds buying housing up. <laughs> like, this right. is a new thing. <laughs> like, who the heck is buying all this inventory right now? In fact, that's what we talked about just before we left. I was saying that there's not only is there opportunities for individuals to buy homes, but there's somebody else buying homes. So, Zach, tell us a little bit about who else is buying homes in this marketplace. Uh, investors. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of investors? Are we talking about just individual investors, or is there a special breed out there right yeah, now? Yeah, why aren't there more homes on the market? They're or closed homes. <laughs> taken off the market? Yeah, yeah. there you go. The hedge funds. Um, is that what we're talking about? Yeah, yes, that's we what are. we're talking about. <laughs> I mean, All right, Miss Sherry Brown with Keller Williams VIP Properties. So I've been following a lot of the foreclosed properties, and the properties are getting sold at auction. And, and it's really interesting because there's a few hedge funds that predominantly are taking over Santa Clarita and the properties that are going to auction, starting out at good bids. Um, you know, they're out there and they're buying the properties and they're buying them and they're holding on to them and they're holding on to them and they're seeing, I'm sure they're going to see positive cash flow. Um, it's interesting because in the last 60 days, um, 50 properties were sold to to investors and there's really about two to three investors that were the bulk of those purchases at auctions, which is interesting. Yeah. So over a quarter of our inventory, at least, if not a half, is being bought up by these hedge funds. Uh, the properties that go into auction, absolutely. So they're coming in with cash, and they're buying these houses up with cash. So this isn't like 2008 where you had faulty loans um, just handed out like candy. This is a situation in which big money is coming in and buying up the housing. You know, and complicating that, we have the Coaster Hawkins Act, which sort of got rid of rent control in a lot of municipalities on the newer buildings. That's sort of a different conversation. But in, in Nevada, do you have a similar situation going on? Yes, actually, we do. We have a real shortage of affordable housing. Um, right now, we have we have a lot of people who are homeless or um, not able to afford um, getting into a home, whether it be renting or buying. And we mm -hmm. see a real large influx of houses that are outside of the economic <laughs> ability of a lot of people right. in, in our community. But we don't mm -hmm. see a lot happening in, in actually um, building affordable housing. And then we see, mm -hmm. if you put on top of that, what happened with this last, um, I hate to call it a tax bill, or the tax scam, I think everyone's calling it. The tax scam. Um, which is better <laughs> fitting. It's just a better fit for what it really is. Um, they yeah. actually cap the amount of interest that you can deduct. And again, that's not going to hurt uh, mm -hmm. essentially the people that are ultra wealthy. That's going to hurt middle, you know, middle class Americans. Right. Yep. Um, whatever's yep. left of the middle class. I hate to even say that. It's more of the working class now. We're actually losing our, our middle class in this in this country. So when we look at this again, it's just an all-out attack. And now we have. Um, <laughs> we have someone in head, ahead of HUD right now who just has no clue uh, what it's like actually yeah. to be in poverty or to need housing at all, uh, and that's even scarier. I mean, it's, there's there's so many things that are are actually playing a part in people not having, um, you know, 
just adequate housing at this point uh, that mm-hmm. it's, it's really creating a crisis. And again, it's, we're seeing that increase between the ultra wealthy and the poor. And we are losing, again, I say this, I, I rarely use the word middle class anymore because we really are losing our middle class. It's just yeah. working families and the ultra wealthy. No, you're right. This this is absolutely indisputably true. And in fact, there was another part of the T- GOP tax scam. I'm going to call that from now on because that's what it is. You're right. <laughs> um, not only is it a massive handout to the wealthy and the corporate tax rate, which is almost 50% and half, uh, but there was this little discussed fact that the the pass through income on commercial real estate. So these are LLCs and the like, and you'll understand this mm-hmm. as a C- CFO. They now have a 20% business income deduction that they can take on their taxes that they didn't have before. So in other words, uh, yeah, and nobody's talking about this thing. And this is crazy to me. You're you're looking at a situation where where they can deduct, what, 2.5% of the purchase price for all their depreciable property. This is a massive tax pound out to them. Right, and let's think about this. So another interesting point that a lot of people don't realize is that very small, extremely small tax breaks that the working families received, that expires. The yeah, tax breaks for yeah. the corporations never expire. They don't. So, and everyone's like, they're happy. We've got $500. It's going gonna, it's gonna to boost the economy. I don't see a lot of people running out and buying new homes with a $500 check or buying a new car no. or putting their kids for college on $500. So you've got $500. Um, I don't think people really understand. And here's the thing. You know, a lot of people, and I hear a lot of people running on completely just an anti-Trump campaign. Mm-hmm. We have to be more than that as a party mm-hmm. and as, as people I who agree. are candidates. We have to be going out there and giving people something to vote for. And part of someone in Congress's, um, part of their responsibility is to educate their, their constituents and by extension people across America on what is actually happening in these bills. And they have to understand what's happening. And I heard there was a senator yeah. that actually he came up and said, well, I didn't have a chance to read the bill. And really, I need a tax accountant to explain this to me. Wow. Well, maybe we need more accountants in an office to help explain how you are yeah. really um, completely taking advantage of the working class. <laughs> yeah, no, and that's exactly what this is. This is this tax scam bill is, is extracts wealth from the remaining middle class and hands it up to the wealthier parts in so many levels. And you're right, the $500 you're getting this year, it's going to expire, but the corporate tax rate is never going to expire. So this is, uh, this has been, this to me is probably one of the most devastating bills that we've seen come to pass in a long time. And it's going to take a lot to unwind it. Um, hopefully, though, we get a lot of progressives into, into Congress and we can make some steps towards that. But it's, it's a very bad bill. Um, so, you know, Social Security is often referred to as an entitlement, and it's not. It's not an entitlement. It's, it's a form of insurance that we all pay into, you know. But the, the Social Security taxes uh, are, re, are regressive. They're not progressive. They're regressive, meaning that after a certain cap, the, they don't get paid into anymore after that. What do you feel about uh, changing that, making it a non-regressive tax, meaning the cap's lifted uh, to a higher level or something? Do you think that this is a way to help remedy some of the problems? Definitely, 100%. And if we look at the spirit in which Social Security was originally initiated, it was supposed to be um, adjusted uh, periodically um, to 
account for inflation and and changes in you know our um, society and how many people we have that are retiring. It it just hasn't mm-hmm. been done. And no. we're at a and, and also the, it's not only just that. That's one of the problems. The other problem is we need to keep Congress uh, out of Social Security's money and stop reappropriating <laughs> it. <laughs> That's right. Um, the amount of treasury bills that that they've taken and replaced taken money I'm replaced with is it's a problem they can't when do they cash them in from the it's like borrowing from yourself it becomes a problem I I completely agree with you right exactly and you know and, and people always talk when they talk about social security they usually only solely think about how does this affect um, our our retiring um, you know citizens in this country it's vitally important when we're talking about social security that we also Remember that it's not just, you know, the aging population that's getting ready to retire that are going to be affected. It also affects people with disabilities immensely. Mm-hmm. And yeah. having been a CFO at a nonprofit uh, company that that specifically um, was doing services for people with disabilities and people with um, severely limiting disabilities as, and who are medically fragile, they have to raise for a, a for their for their facilities over a million dollars a year mm. just to break even, and that's wow. a huge thing that they have to come up with, and they have to constantly be out in the, in the community. And when they can't, they have to cut vital services, um, and it affects what kind of life these individuals have and how well they can be cared for. So we have to remember, again, you know, a lot of these things are very intersectional and that we need people who are going to be in Congress who are going to look at these issues that are in a holistic manner and make sure that when we're discussing making changes to legislation or proposing new legislation, that we're keeping in mind all the individuals and communities that are going to be affected by um, what's being proposed or what's um, being changed. You also support universal preschool, which studies have shown is a good investment. Uh, and it's something I think that we should be doing, and we should be doing it across the board. But it seems like for years now, every time we've tried to create initiatives to support that, there's just tons of pushback. Do you think the environment is changing and that this is something we can actually look at and get past, or um, no? And then what kind of initiatives would you support in that area? Well, we know right now that from studies that have shown that when children have preschool that they actually are more likely to graduate and go on to college or trade school. They do better mm-hmm. through school. And I can tell you how important it is to have that early childhood um, preschool and intervention in some cases for children. You know, having two children who are on the autism spectrum, one mm. that is in his early 20s and another one that is six. My older mm-hmm. son, they, they were, there were no programs for that. You know, ECIS really right. wasn't um, being widely used. They really didn't understand autism. Um, there was no early intervention that he was offered or available. Really was just in the infancy as far as um, parents being knowledgeable about these these particular um, programs that could be, mm-hmm. uh, you know, used for their children. Right. My son, the older son, struggled all through high school. And, and we didn't even know until he was in sixth grade that not only did he have autism, but he was also dyslexic. And here he has lost the most important, you know, formal years of his education 
and there's no getting that back. It's, it's, it's very, very difficult. And he struggled all through high school and uh, struggled even as an adult. Whereas my younger son, who's actually less functioning than my older son, is actually doing amazingly well. They have really increased his ability to have communication with other peers and with adults. He is not having to be in, in a closed classroom anymore. He's able to be in with typically developing ch developed children. Um, and he is able to participate in an environment that's healthy for everyone involved. And he is actually surpassing grade level in, in reading and in writing. Um, and this is, this is the kind of effect that it has on our children. And again, you know, our greatest resource as a country is our people. And we need to remember that, that they are going to be our future scientists, doctors, right. legislators. I mean, what better way to invest? And it's, it's shown yeah. that every dollar we invest, we get it multiple back. That's right. Yeah, it is a solid investment. And I, um, I really hope folks out there start to kind of change their minds about that and see it as, as an investment as opposed to something that's an entitlement or a waste of money, all the other arguments that you hear, because it, it really does make a difference. Well, you know, think about... Who is messaging on these programs? And where, where is the, the public getting their opinions on these programs and these bills? It usually is coming from their legislators or people who are, you know, right. actually messaging. And I, one of the things I think we're doing a really poor job on um, in, in Congress right now that I'm seeing is that they're not really messaging to their constituents as much and as often as they should about what bills are coming up, what's the importance behind them, why mm -hmm. they're voting the way they're voting, really using every opportunity available to really explain to people in their districts, and, and by extension, America, you know, why these bills are so vitally necessary. And we need to have more people out there explaining this and using every opportunity to start helping you know, the, the citizens um, understand why it's necessary we have these types of services and what is the benefit for us in the long run? Mm -hmm. No, Amy, and you're so you're so right on that. Uh, messaging has been absolutely missing, and in fact, one of the reasons I started following Bernie Sanders like 10, 15 years ago, whenever it's been so long, I can't even recall, was because he did do this very thing that you're talking about. I never heard this stuff from my senators or my congressperson, but I would go to his website and I, I signed up to be on his email list and I would get these weekly things about what was going on and I'd be like, okay, right. I'm hearing from this guy from Vermont, <laughs> but not anybody <laughs> in my state. I mean, it's, <laughs> but you're right, this is, this is what a congressperson's job is. Uh, it's to not, it's not to answer to your donor class corporate whoever's giving you the money to, to do quid pro quo is to educate your constituents and maybe sometimes if you get pushback on something you can explain your point of view and maybe you might change your view based on what they say or maybe they might change their view but at least there's a con conversation that should be had you know and I exactly. feel like that's completely disappeared you are so right on that um we're talking so in generalities we, anymore there's no specifics yeah. Even in my race, if you look at my opponent's websites, there's there's nothing really there that is telling you what no. they're planning to do or what they're supporting and why and why we need it. Um, but <laughs> as you saw on my website, it's pretty detailed. <laughs> your website it's is amazing. It out there. No, I Thank love you. your website. You you make it really clear what you support. And no, this is what more people should be doing. My new favorite thing that I'm seeing the. Um, the centrist or establishment Democrats, I don't know, whatever you want to call these folks, using as Medicare extra. And you're like, really? 
Right. I I just <laughs> no. <laughs> it's sometimes it's really hard to look at all this stuff. I just can't even. <laughs> yeah, it's right. Cause you just have a moment where you're like, you're you're completely trying to boondoggle the voters with this stuff. You can't even come out and say what you support because. You you have to figure out who is going to support you more if you based on on the position as opposed to just taking a position and arguing your case. You know, and that's I know you had Nina Turner um, visiting you this past week, and this is one of the reasons I love Nina is because she just doesn't she doesn't stop. I mean, she just this is it. She has no fear of expressing her opinion, standing behind her opinion, and and she's such a strong woman. How did your um, event go? Oh, the event went really well. We had um, over 200 people in attendance. There was a lot of new faces there as well. Um, and people are just really excited. They're really excited about this this campaign and what we're doing and how bold we're being with uh, what we're messaging. Um, of course, there's, there's, that's the word. Yeah. You have to be bold. Yeah. You have to have a backbone and be bold. And yeah. you have to have a reason. You know, that's something yeah. that a lot of people are running and they aren't, like I've said before, when you aren't your typical candidate, you need to remember your why. And you really, you know, start to lose your timidness if you start remembering your why. For me, mm. it's very clear my why I got involved. And, uh, you know, right. I know I have nothing I can do will ever bring back Shalin as much as I'd like. Um, but I definitely found purpose in her passing. But I... Right. It took me a while to get to that point, but I, you know, I found purpose in her passing and I have learned to turn that grief and complete and utter devastation that I went through for a year and a half and still struggle with. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, it doesn't go away. You know, you don't ever no. stop missing your child. You don't ever no. just get over it. Um, but, no. you know, when you find purpose in helping others, that is very healing. When you know that you can make change and effect in someone else's life and that um you know if she just didn't die for anything that she no you've given her. a purpose yeah yeah yes that's a beautiful yeah. thing actually and i think i think she's probably looking down and smiling and, and very proud of what you're doing yeah. um <laughs> you i gotta believe that um so you've been very vocal against um tpp which is great and tissa these are horrible horrible bills um, but we also have right now uh, free trade agreements like NAFTA that are, are still around that probably need to be renegotiated. And I'd like to see them become fair trade agreements, meaning when we talk about fair trade, you take into account labor, you take into account environment, you take into account things other than what the corporate interests want. You know, NAFTA has been devastating uh, for so many sections of, of our manufacturing industry here in the United mm -hmm. States. We've lost a lot of jobs. But it's also been devastating for Mexico. A lot of people don't realize that. They've had wages decrease as well, especially in the area of agriculture. Right. So, well, that's um, something I message on quite a bit. Yeah. You know, okay. Talk when, to me about that. When we talk about, again, I'm going to talk about everything's intersectional. So when I was yeah. on, I think it was on TYT, and we were talking about, um, you know, people fleeing from other countries. And there, I think at that point in time, there was a caravan that tried to cross. And everyone's in hysteria over all these people trying to come into the United States. You know, when mm -hmm. we talk about even immigration, we have to remember America's role and why yeah. these people, either whether yeah. it's regime change or whether it's, you know, through these trade agreements that have, you know, decreased their, their, their standard of living 
because they're able to get right. away with paying much lower wages than what would be a livable wage. You know, we have to understand our part in that as well. And then mm-hmm. when we talk about these trade agreements, it's also it's not it's not really benefiting the workers. It's benefiting the corporations, and a lot of these are hurting the workers. I, you know, I, that we have to do we have to renegotiate these. Um, and also, yeah. a lot of times we don't, we don't have say in these in these trade agreements over environmental aspects of it, um, and what's happening in other countries with their workers. So again, you know, these are these are really aimed towards helping corporations and not necessarily aimed to ensuring that uh, that workers are protected and that we are bettering the lives of you know the working families. Uh, and that's so important. That should be at the forefront forefront of every you know, piece of legislation that or, or agreement or whatever it is that we're working on initiative um, going mm-hmm. forward. Yeah, you know, and you bring up an interesting point. Um, you know, for, for a great many years, Congress was pretty much in charge of these sorts of things, but now you have a fast-track system that's given way more power to the executive branch. So uh, It was Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis who said, and I quote, we can either have democracy in this country or we can have great wealth concentrated in the hands of a few, but we cannot have both. Um, past 30 years, top 1% of Americans has seen their income uh, triple, now make 23% of the total. But middle and working class Americans have seen their wages stagnate and median income fall. What's the quote from yesterday on NPR, Tom? 85 richest people control more wealth than the bottom 50% of the world's population. It, it really is staggering. Some of the stuff that we've seen with with war, meaning Congress used to always have to declare war, and now that's not necessarily the case. There's ways around it. We've seen a similar um, thing digress away from Congress with, with the trade agreements. Is there a way, in your opinion, to revert that, turn that car around? Because I really feel... Um, you know, one of the biggest disappointments, disappointments I had, and I voted for Obama twice, I volunteered for him the whole nine yards, I was very disappointed that he did not roll back a lot of the Bush-era uh, things that had gone on because I felt like they gave way too much power to the executive branch. And when he came into office, I thought he would roll those back, and that didn't happen. And now I feel like that entire toxic football has been handed to Trump. Without objection. Um. Mr. President, I rise in strong opposition to the fast-track bill that the Finance Committee approved last night that will be on the floor, I think, here next week or the following week on the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, The most important uh, aspect, I think, of this debate is that what we are discussing with the TPP is not a new concept. It's not like somebody came up and said, I got a great idea, let's try this trade agreement and it's gonna be really good for the American worker and the American middle class and the American people. Uh, The truth of the matter is, is that we have seen this movie time and time and time again. And let me tell you that the ending of this movie is not very good. It's a pretty bad ending. And I think most Americans understand that our past trade agreements have failed American workers uh, and have led to the loss of millions of decent paying jobs. And what I simply don't understand, if we were going forward in the first place, new idea, maybe give it a shot. But when we went forward with NAFTA, went forward with CAFTA, 
went forward with permanent normal trade relations, and we heard all of these folks telling us how great these agreements were going to be, and it turned out that virtually everything that they said was inaccurate, not true. Why in God's name would we go forward with another trade agreement, which is in fact larger than previous trade agreements? And let me just give you an example of what I mean, Mr. President. Uh, on September 19, 1993, President Bill Clinton said the following, quote, I believe that NAFTA will create 200,000 American jobs in the first two years of its effect. I believe that NAFTA will create a million jobs in the first five years of its impact, end of quote. President Clinton was pushing the NAFTA agreement very, very hard, uh, and that's what he said. In 1993, same year, uh, the Heritage Foundation, one of the most conservative think tanks in the country. So here you have a liberal president, Bill Clinton, you have a conservative think tank, the Heritage Foundation. This is what they said. Virtually all economists agree that NAFTA will produce a net increase of U.S. jobs over the next decade. In 1993, the distinguished senator from Kentucky who is now our majority leader, Mitch McConnell. This is what he said, and I quote, American firms will not move to Mexico just for lower wages. Mitch McConnell, American firms will not move to Mexico just for lower wages. Well, was President Clinton right? Was the Heritage Foundation right? Was Senator McConnell right? No. I think the evidence is pretty clear that they were all wrong. Do to revert that situation? Is that is that a plausible thing in your opinion, or or what are your thoughts on that? It is when you have the people behind you. You know, we just saw mm. what what happens when when you have people getting together and raising their voices. You know, a lot mm. of us have been called into this belief that we don't have power, that we are we are powerless, that right. we are at the mercy right. of our legislators. That's untrue. Let's look what just happened in Florida when students, students stood up and said enough is yeah. enough. And they did it so yeah. loudly and with such fervor that they got the attention of the, the media, they got the attention of the legislators, and they pushed them. We need to have leaders in Congress. We need to elect them that are going to lead the people and have the mm -hmm. support of the people within their district to start pushing mm -hmm. back. You know, we can do that even now. We don't have to wait till 2020. Mm -hmm. We can start that, that whole movement, that process now. Really going out again, talking to the people in your district, your constituents, and informing them why these things are so vital and important. You know, you can be what, what I consider to be a true leader. And I'm not sure we have a lot of those right now. And so yeah. when people are going to the polls. Remember, you need to look and see who is speaking boldly. Who is, who is going to lead? Who is going to come out in the communities and garner that support? Because the power of the people is what is needed to push on legislators. We're seeing it with help, you know, Medicare for all. We're seeing it with mm -hmm. gun policy. We're seeing it with cannabis. We're seeing... People have more mm -hmm. power than what they think they do. They just need to have a voice, feel like they have a seat at the table, and that they will be listened to, and they have a place in their district with their representatives to be that voice. Yeah, you know, I think you're right on that too, Amy, because there's there was a, a sort of a shift change in perception where voters all of a sudden started thinking, well, 
you know, and part of it's this whole lesser evil argument that's been rehashed for, you know, 30 years now. Well, you just have to vote the lesser evil as opposed to the person that you agree with. And, you know, I don't think that's true. Votes need to be earned. Politicians work for people. We don't work for them. And more people need to realize that and rise up and say, no, my voice matters. My opinion matters. You work for me, so stop listening to the corporations. I think you're two hundred and thousand percent correct on that. Um, we need to get we need to get our power back, and the way to do it is just simply by being strong voice in your opinion and electing folks that aren't taking corporate money. That's the huge thing right there. Exactly. You know, you talked about a little bit about briefly. You mentioned trade schools, and I think this is a, an overlooked area as well that doesn't get talked about enough. Not everybody needs to go to a UC school. Not everybody is going to get a PhD. That doesn't mean we shouldn't provide education. Um, I, I'm a big believer that we should be funding some sort of trade vocational system, maybe part of the community college system or what have you, to allow Bring it back for, to the high schools uh, too. Yeah, right. I mean, because we always need mm -hmm. plumbers. We always there are trades that will that still pay well that you know have openings in because there's there's simply kids that aren't getting the training to do these jobs. And I think, um, I don't know how we got away from that, but I think it's something we should refinance, uh, reinvest in. Uh, so what is your vision in that area? I definitely think we need to invest in trade schools. We need to bring back trade uh, training in, in the high schools, you know, shops and things of that sort that I had when I was growing up that no longer mm -hmm. exist in the majority of schools. You know, for yeah. instance, you know, let's talk about my oldest son again who is not able to go through a traditional school. But, I, you know, I was able, thankfully at the time, because I was working, to pay for him to go to a boot camp to learn programming. He now has a career mm. in programming. Not everybody is able to do that. And we right. are not funding that. We don't have that kind of setup available. We need to make sure that we are, we are enabling everyone who's able and willing to reach their fullest potential. And there's nothing wrong with having a, a great job, you know, um, out of a trade. There's nothing wrong with that at all. And, and like you said, we need, you know, experienced tradesmen yeah. in this country. Um, and it's a great, it's a great job. It's an honorable job. Um, and I say that and maybe I'm a little bit, you know, biased seeing that my father was a blue collar worker. He's a union iron worker. Yeah. So was my <laughs> grandfather. But, yeah. uh, you know. Those jobs still have, they're very significant and they're they still needed and, and a lot of people enjoy that line of work. Um, and not everybody Absolutely. is set up to be a professor. Maybe right. not, and then most of them don't want to. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we have to make sure we're getting workers out there. And we also have to have jobs ready. We need to make sure we're building, again, rebuilding our economy. Some of these jobs can't be outsourced. I think that's key too. Right. Well, well, one of the things that I'm, I'm really pushing, and um, I was glad to see Bernie Sanders come on board with it as well, was uh, a federal jobs guarantee you know, tied to an infrastructure mm. program. You know, this would be immensely helpful to our economy as a whole, as well as, you know, every person that's able and willing, you know, being to work, being able to, to have a job, um, something they can go and put a good day's work in and feel good about providing for their family. This is something that's vital. We have a D minus in our infrastructure. We're hearing yeah. constantly about, you know, water pipes. You know, we, we just saw another issue with water now up in Chicago. We're hearing about this all over the country. I know there's issues here even in Nevada. We have mm -hmm. lots of things that need to be fixed. Our infrastructure really needs to be revitalized. Um, 
light removal within certain parts of town. We could be doing transportation. And when we do this, we can be setting it up not for 1956, but for 2056 with right. green energy technology. We need to be investing as a country into, you know, really looking into and um, developing the technology behind green, green energy. We should be leaders in this. In Nevada, we, we could be. be leaders in it as well. I mean, we have a lot of available land space. We have a lot of the elements necessary. We should be leaders in, in really pursuing uh, green energy. That's one thing. That's another thing I'd like to start pursuing um, in Congress that would also mm -hmm. address some of the shortages of jobs in this country. Yeah, in fact, we, you know, we should be leaders in this. And our, our, you're right, our infrastructure is crumbling. And at the same time, I just read an article this last week where in China they have built a solar highway. And I'm reading this article and I'm thinking to myself, this isn't happening in the United States. This is happening in China. China, like one of the biggest polluting com countries of the last two decades, is now building a solar highway. What are we doing in the United States? Why aren't we doing this stuff? Well, I can tell you why. <laughs> yeah, right. But it goes back to money and politics. You know, yes, the, everything goes back to that. <laughs> it, it really does. And you know, and and right now we have a lot of pushback on this, and and we can see that the private market is not really doing what it needs to address not only infrastructure but developing that technology. We need to have mm -hmm. you know some government funds put aside to really yeah. scare us off in that in that direction. Um, but it's, again, it's, it's down to what are your priorities when you're in Congress and what are you going to be fighting for and who right. are you going to be fighting for? Right. Right. You know, I feel like, you know, corporations now with the tax cut, even if we gave them a tax to pay for some of this infrastructure, they use our public goods, but they aren't paying their, paying their fair share to, um, make them workable at this point. So if they want to drive their semi-trucks down our highways, they want to use all of these things to uh, help them get profits, don't you think they should be chipping in and, and, and paying for part of it? It's right. just so ridiculous at this point that they can't even pay their fair share. So true. Right now we kept on hearing through this tax deal that, oh, you know, corporations have the highest tax rate and on and on and on. What they <laughs> fail to mention is what's their effective <laughs> tax rate. Exactly. So well, let's talk about that, because I know what the right. difference of that is, and I just I wish I could have been on the floor. <laughs> right. Oh my God, you uh, would have been amazing, Amy. <laughs> I was like, really? Nobody brought that up. Nobody brought that up. No. We're talking about the thirty-five percent marginal rate, but can we talk about the six percent or the two percent or the one percent or, or the zero? Amazon zero percent, which is what they're actually paying. Who cares? And it's about not just Amazon. It's not just Amazon. It's many. No, it's not. Many. It's not. It's many. many it's many. They're just extracting wealth from this country. They're extracting wealth from the taxpayers. You know, and companies and like actually, Walmart, should, for example. Go ahead. I was going to say, you should, we, we should put on that a, um, just put some primers on that. We're talking about large, huge companies. Right, right. The average no, no, no. mom and pop shop, the one that's, you know, the small business in town, you know, the local, you know, uh, repair shop, the, the local restaurant. Right, right. No, they're, they're paying their fair share of taxes. They're paying more than their fair share. It's the corporations exactly. are getting away with. The multinational corporations are getting away with murder. You know, and, the and they're playing on that. And that's why the average American, 
will say, yes, no more taxes where you're hurting small businesses. And that's where they get them to come on board. But what they don't realize is, yes, you're paying that. But the yeah. large multinational yeah. corporations and the conglomerates, they're not. It's two different, two different tax levels here we're talking about. It's two, and again, yes. no one's pointing and, that out. No one's pointing that out, Amy. And the other thing is nobody points out that the multinational corporations have a different set of rules that they're p- playing by. They're not playing by the same set of rules as the mom and pops are. They've completely no, rigged the system between the pass-through money, between, uh, you know, I'm going to go to Ireland, I'm going to go to Panama, I'm going to go to ever wherever I can hoard wealth and not pay any taxes. Then I'm going to come back to Congress and say, well, you want me to repatriate all this money? Fine, give me a break. I'll, I'll pay 4% in taxes and I'll bring it all back. They're playing, they're playing Congress and have been for years and years and years. Carried interest is another one. I mean, so it, they, they, they play by a don't different set of rules. Gains. And I don't, yeah, so I don't think, <laughs> right, I don't think a lot of people realize how completely rigged the system is. They think, um, don't have the knowledge. They're not given the knowledge. It's not their fault, really. They don't, they're not, nobody's telling them about this stuff, you know? I mean, it's not like our mainstream media is either. Nobody wants to talk about it because, the mainstream media is all owned by massive corporations as well. So it's like, it's a very vicious cycle that we're in and it doesn't end well for anybody. I mean, I suppose that at the end of the day, the corporations think, well, I'll just, you know, do business someplace else. If I, if, if the consumer base dries up the United States, I still have all these other foreign markets, but this is a global problem. And eventually that's not going to be an ability that they have any longer. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm, exactly. So I wanted to talk a little bit about a local issue um, that sort of affects the entire country, though. Uh, you know, you have a Yucca Mountain situation that, and, and you've taken a stand on this, and I think it's a good stand you've taken. For sure. The debate over Yucca Mountain is reignited for sure, now that the president is including money to finish it in his latest budget. We've heard from many Nevada leaders who oppose the idea of storing the nation's nuclear waste in Nevada. But as Gerard Romalo reports, while that may be the majority opinion, it is not unanimous. Some people would welcome the dump. Ceramic pellets for the spent fuel, and this is a big glass log within this uh, stainless steel canister. Daryl Lacey is the director of the Nye County Nuclear Waste Office. Here inside the Pahrump Valley Museum, a collection of artifacts, mostly from the Department of Energy. So it's not going to get out. No one's going to breathe it. No one's going to be a green cloud. uh... No, there's not going to be anything like that. It's just solid materials. In the third test, a diesel locomotive crashed into a truck at 81 miles per hour. The museum, which includes videos of nuclear canisters being slammed by freight trains, is what he calls the truth about storing and transporting nuclear waste. Now, how long has this yeah. been here? Nye County Commissioner Dan Schinhofen is a longtime proponent of Yucca Mountain and applauds the president's latest budget, which includes $120 million to restart the Yucca licensing process. It shouldn't be for the politicians to decide. It, we should let the, the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, have the hearings and adjudicate it. Already the national labs have all said it is safe. Admittedly, if Yucca were to open, it could mean an economic boom for the county. As for opposing politicians like Las Vegas Mayor Carolyn Goodman, I would recommend that they listen to the other side. Many of the answers lie within these walls, says Lacey, information that is free and open to the public. Well, we feel like that's our obligation to the citizens of Nye County is to help them have the facts, not the, not the fear-mongering. So Nye County's official position is, let's have these hearings, let's study and discuss the science. 
if the project does happen, many will believe uh, that it, it will be grander than Hoover Dam with construction jobs that could last 20 years or longer and perhaps an indefinite number of permanent jobs. Jim and Reid. All right, Gerard, thank you. It's uh, interesting to hear from uh, people with that, that opinion. The fate of Yucca Mountain is a hot topic on social media. You can keep up on all the new developments by following and liking our Twitter. And, and, and you've taken a stand on this, and I think it's a good stand you've taken because there really isn't um, lack of political will to review um, any gaps that they might have in their standards. And why is it only Yucca Mountain that they're looking at? You know, I mean, this is very toxic waste that we're discussing here. So what are your plans for that situation? Well, we have to uh, make sure that when we're talking about these situations that we are reverting back to the experts. Um, I personally do not support it um, because, again, our, our industry in Nevada, it relies heavily on having people come and visit here. Yeah. We are yeah. completely driven by... Um, having people come from other states to visit, and even just a slight decrease in the amount of visitors we have in, in this state can have drastic impact on our residents. And I think a lot of the issues that people are taking is really with the transportation of this material to yeah. the Yucca Mountain. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and again, it really goes back to that point that we should be, we should be spending our money right now in really researching green energy. And there are there are some forms of green energy out there right now that have have actually been on the table for quite some time, but they stopped doing research on it that actually uses um, uses the waste. Um, mm. And mm. we need to be looking at these things, again, holistically. But I don't think that the majority of Nevadans um, right now are sold on the idea of, of Yucca Mountain. I'd say the vast majority are not. Um, okay. Because the transportation issues, how they're going to get it there? They have to go through major, you know, um, pass through homes and cities that they are not. They're not wanting that that material to come through, um, and we're not sure them. how safe it's going to be. Um, but then again, we have you know people that you know it's a, it would be a job creator on some level. So we have to be really looking at this again. It's that that holistic approach that it's not just an mm -hmm. issue of you know, the environment, but it's also an issue of jobs. It's, it's, it's just, it's very complex. And so yeah. when we're talking about reasons that we would not be in support, we also have to give alternative things that we can be doing. And, and, and really, you know, there are things that we'd be doing with, with the space that would be at Yucca Mountain, uh, you know, mm -hmm. possibly for even green energy. But we don't have anybody who that is a priority right now running in Congress or in Congress um, to really take a look at some of the alternatives. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting that you mentioned, I did not know this, you mentioned that there is some folks looking at using the spent waste as a form of energy. That seems to me like a very plausible solution and something we should definitely be investing in researching. Um, yeah, it actually was developed quite a bit ago. It was never, the technology was never completed 100% or, or hmm. put, or actually, it wasn't, um, research enough to make it to where it was competitive with nuclear energy um, because okay. because of um, the economic forces at play during that time. So there is, it's out there. It's been developed. It, it still needs a little bit of work to complete, but um, it's, it, it does exist. And hmm. uh, I'm, not, I'm not a scientist, 
<laughs> right, right. Um, no, no, I'm, I'm, just, I'm interested in this, though. Yeah. That's yeah. There, there's, there's, a, there's a gentleman out here, um, his last name's Shepard, that he's running. In the 1960s, Oak Ridge National Laboratories built a device called a liquid fluoride thorium reactor. They ran it for 22,000 hours, and it works perfectly. It is the energy solution that we should have been using all along. The only reason we chose to bypass this great idea and do the solid fuel reactors that you know today, the Fukushima Daiichi's, the Three Mile Islands, the Chernobyl's, the only reason we pursued these questionable technologies was because they produced the nuclear waste that was necessary to create nuclear weapons. It was and always has been a weapons program. Well, we're done building weapons. It's time to get rid of that 71,000 tons of nuclear waste that we have stockpiled. And it is time to rid ourselves of the 7,000 nuclear warheads that we currently have stockpiled as well. We can do all of this with liquid fluoride thorium reactors. With lifters, not only do we not produce nuclear waste, we consume it. We'll get rid of all the waste we currently have, and we have enough thorium to power the planet forever. There is no shortage, and it is not geographically limited. We will never have to go into a conflict zone to extract a material resource for energy ever again, nor will any other nation. This is the pathway to getting us out of Middle Eastern involvements. It is the district that's right above mine that yeah. he really is an expert on it. Um, but he oh, was talking okay. about that one day. And I was like, wow, you know, and I started doing a little research right? myself. And so right. it's interesting. It's, you know, money and politics has been around for quite some time. It's, it's killing us. prolific than it's ever been. It's, yeah, and it's killing innovation. You know, I, I think that's the other part of the conversation that people don't have that they need to realize. It's killing innovation. You know, this is stuff that would at one time would have been funded, research funded by the government. And that's pretty much dissipated. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, Bell Lab, back in the day, all of these things, we used to be such great innovators in this country, and now that we've privatized everything, you know, and the corporation's chasing nothing but profit, a lot of that's gone by the wayside, and it's really unfortunate. Um, what other parts of your platform do you think are important that we haven't discussed already, I should say? Well, I would say that we, we definitely, when we're talking about schools, we touched a little bit on um, colleges and universities and trade schools, but, you know, another big thing that is, is huge in, in this state as well as across uh, America is making sure that we keep public money in public schools and increasing yeah, the wages yeah. of teachers. Um, mm -hmm. Right now, even our special education programs are not being funded with the level that they're supposed to be funded in IDA. We need to make sure that we have someone who truly understands the impacts of that um, in Congress and will fight. Um, we're really top heavy in administration in the schools, um, but not paying our teachers adequately. Um, there mm -hmm. was a piece out that actually, um, I remember someone telling me the teachers were really upset because even the administrative you know, um, staff was making so much more than the actual uh, teachers. Even the secretaries were making more than teachers should no. have a livable wage, you know, even even the secretary should have a good wage. But we, we have to make sure that we are paying our teachers what is fair. And we need I to agree. take a look at the funding models, see where the money's going, and we need to invest more in our schools. And whether that is a combination of both more money federally and working with the states to funnel some of the state money back in the schools, I mean, each situation is going to be different depending on the state, of course, because a lot of that is governed by each state. Um, but mm -hmm. We can do things at a federal level to really have an impact and work along with federal with uh, state legislators 
to ensure that we are doing as much as we can to put our state, our schools back up as, you know, A1 type schools. Um, that's really important to me. People go to your website and you can really read in detail a lot of, about the things that you support, which is wonderful. I'm glad that you do support the school situation because I, you know, people often say that we spend so much money on education, but we really don't. We, we don't spend a lot of money in this country on education. It's, we're, we're at the bottom. And, you know, we also, maybe should look at expanding the school year. You know, in other countries, like uh, my family is from Sweden, we have school for much longer a year there. It's, you know, not forget how many days, but, you know, you could add another 50 days to that and you would be probably on par with some of the Scandinavian countries. So right. I just don't, I don't know what it is about how, how folks don't see education as investment because that's what it is. It's an investment in society. It's an investment in lowering crime rates and, and sure. increasing productivity. Like, there's so many benefits to education. To me, this is the one thing that we should really, really focus on. I agree completely. And, and you know, our children spend so much more time every day in school um, than they do even with us. And what better investment is there than yeah. to make sure that they're getting a quality education? Yeah, and why, you know, and I don't understand this drive to not pay teachers. Teachers should be paid almost double what they're making. You know, here in California, all teachers, I mean, even to be a substitute teacher, you have to have a college degree. That's, that's, just, that's just starting level. And then you need to either have a credential or master's on top of that. So these are all highly educated individuals, yet the starting salaries are less than 40000 a year. This is insane. And, you know, <laughs> in the private sector, somebody had that level of education. They'd be being paid double that. What are we doing with what are we doing with our priorities? I guess I don't I don't exactly. understand what people priorities. Think. Yeah, priorities. Uh, teachers, I think double the pay. I'm 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 good with that. I will I will pay more in taxes if you double the pay a teacher. <laughs> Let me just say that right, right now. I think it's a good idea. Um. So, um, if somebody wants to donate to your campaign, where is the best place for them to go? They can go to amyforthepeople.com. And we have a donate button on there. You know, we're, we could use, you know, all the help that anyone can give right now. We're at 40 days out from the primary. And uh, we actually are a very viable campaign. We have I think you are. knocked on over, like, 13,000 doors. We've made over 30,000 phone calls. We're getting close to our win number for Get Out the Vote. And, um, unfortunately, uh, the DCCC has decided to weigh in on this, on this race. And they can see that we are gaining a ton of support and momentum, and they're actually even putting a battle station here. Um, so Are they really? Yes. And so we really need the help from, from the progressive community. We are, you know, going as, like I told you before, it's, it's really a, a David versus Goliath. And we need to get oh. out signs. We need to get out, you know, literature. Um, we've been we've been really doing amazing things with the amount of money we have done. And we, we raised quite a bit. We we're the second highest uh, raiser out of the six Democrats that are running. The first one was, of course, you know, shaking down D.C. But um, we have done amazing with with this race, and we have a real path to victory. And it's a key state, not just for 2018, but for 2020. It, we yeah, have I agree. got to make sure we get a progressive in this seat and. Uh, and, and this is a really viable campaign. It's it's really shocking a lot of people who thought that a progressive wouldn't have a chance in this district. Yeah, the DCCC can be so tone deaf. Now, can we talk a little bit about that for a second? Sure. Who are who is the DCCC 
who are they giving their money to? They're supporting somebody other than you, I'm assuming, by the way you're saying this. Yes, um, they're giving it to my opponent, Stephen Horsford. From the YouTube videos, the Poker Stars Annual Conference in the Bahamas looks like a lot of fun. News Force confirmed the corporation paid for Senate Majority Leader Stephen Horsford to attend the 2011 event. In fact, a News Force search of records detailing lobbyist gifts doesn't reveal any of the trips. Selling access? Absolutely. A 2010 investigation by the Review Journal revealed that Horsford was selling private meetings with lawmakers in exchange for donations. Um, and um, they've been pushing out, um, you know, all kinds of uh, social media. Um, and again, uh, you know, right now they've just set it up, the battle station here in Nevada. Um, but, you know, what I believe is that, you know, we hear Tom Perez on TV right now that he's defending why they're suing Russia and, and others because of the, the, the last election, because they believe that, because Democrats believe in democracy and a fair, in a fair election. And there's nothing mm -hmm. fair about the DCCC going into primaries and putting a thumb into primaries and pouring money into people, uh, candidates, and trying to sway the public and deciding for the public who the chosen candidate is for the general. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that just, that's really surprising that they could even see that that would make sense to them or, or even be a true display of democracy. You know, as Democrats, you know, we should, we the people should be able to decide who we want to represent us, not only the general, but in, in, in legislation, uh, in the House or in the Senate, whatever your race may be. And that's not what's happening. And we no, can see it time and time again. Yeah, it's not just with you. I, this infuriates me. You have no idea. My blood is boiling right now. They should not be weighing, weighing in on primary elections, A. You know, and I know that they have been doing opposition research on other Democratic candidates and other primaries. And I, I, I see this, and I think to myself, have you learned nothing from 2016? Have you learned nothing? Let the people decide who they want, because that is where our power is. It's in the grassroots. It's, it's, it's in voters being excited about their candidate. If you try to tell them what they want, they're going to stay home and not vote. Right, exactly. It will backfire. I can't believe they're doing this in your race now, too. This infuriates me. All right, progressives, right, exactly. you're hearing this. you got to help Amy get elected here we have to keep we have to keep pushing against the DNC and the DCCC otherwise we're going to get nowhere they just don't want to hear it I can't believe they're doing this I mean I can but I can't you know what I'm saying <laughs> so are they hiring any because um, I know here in California this is another thing they do is they hire canvassers they actually pay canvassers um, which blows my mind has that happened in your area yet so to be honest, I, you know, this just opened just this last week, so I don't know what their scope will be, and I, you know, oh, I definitely okay. don't want to accuse of something that I don't know yet, but no, I yeah, can't imagine yeah. any okay. other reason why they'd be opening up a station here in this district. Um, and it's just also pushing them out on social media, um, and, and, and this is a, you know, this is really just not uh, democratic at all. It's not okay. No, it's and not you know okay. I've been in the it's race democracy months and months and months, and I had a you know a really good start head start. I was six months in the race before anyone else, 
Um, and I was um, in it um, in the primary as a sitting Democrat who I knew was flawed. Um, but when the seat became open, you know, um, people saw an opportunity to advance their political career. Um, and uh, one, one of my opponents mm-hmm. came back from D.C. to do it. So it's it's really unfortunate that that we have this playing out here in Nevada. Um, and I'm all for, you know, this robust primaries. But I really and I'm, I'm not, you know, against having um, people running against against me in a primary. I think it's it's good for democracy. It, it opens up the platform to start talking about the issues. It's an opportunity to show how you differ maybe with your opponents and what you have to offer and get people talking about the issues. Um, what I what I am opposed to is having some D.C. insiders from D.C. and the D.C. Yeah. coming in and deciding for the people who they're going to yeah. have to go work for in the general to get elected into a seat and it not being the real choice of the people. Yeah, it's really it's bad. They, God. Yeah, this is, you know, how can they, how could they pretend to be the party that's for democracy against voter suppression for expanding voter rights when they turn around and they do this stuff. And you know that DCCC money isn't coming from individual donors. If, if they're picking, if they're hand picking a candidate, there's a reason for it. And um, I'm guessing that they saw you as a threat, which is why they just recently came into town. I mean, you have endorsements from our revolution, from Justice Democrats. You have, um, you're viable, which maybe that's threatening to them. But it's just so sad that we have to fight our own people harder than we have to fight the right sometimes. Why are we in this place? That's what I can't understand. If you had told me 10 years yeah. ago I'd be fighting Democrats, like my own party, I would, I would have said you're crazy. But <laughs> here we are. <laughs> well, we also have Citizens United now. So again... Yeah, <laughs> I keep yeah, saying this, no, but right. it's it's money and politics, and it's it's, it's been politics. it has really um, been horrible to our democracy. It's been mm-hmm. horrible to the working families in this country, um, and yeah. it's time that that the people stand up and say enough is enough. We're not sending status quo to Washington D.C. anymore. We need to send that message and have it loud and clear. Status quo is no longer enough, and it's not going to Washington, D.C. anymore. 